Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Amen. 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 Church, you may grab your seats and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1 today. Well, welcome. If you're joining us for the first time, it's a great Sunday to be joining us as we're kicking off our new series, By Faith. By Faith. And we'll be in Galatians 1, starting in verse 1 today. And the whole theme of the series, if you can guess it, it's by faith. Our faith drives absolutely everything. It starts there, it finishes there, it drives everything we do by faith. And so for those note takers, you can title this sermon, By God's Grace. So series by faith, then we're talking about by God's grace today. And it's going to be the theme and the thrust of this whole time is God's grace, because if we don't get this right, everything else will be wrong. By God's grace. Grace. And so, if you still carry uh, hard copy Bibles, use the table of contents. If you can't find Galatians, no shame there at all. Nobody's judging that. It's all good. I, mean, I remember used to, especially as a newer Christian, I had no idea where books were in the Bible. And everybody else was kind of looking at you, so you're like flumming through, acting like you know what you're doing, right? Because nobody wants to use the table of contents. You can use them here, all right? Amen. Amen. Galatians 1, starting in verse 1, says this. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now, real quick, let's pause there. Bible study principle, okay? What we're reading, who's it written by, who's it written to, right? And so a lot of the New Testament we know are letters. And so I'm going to ask you, Who's it written by? You can't say God. That's already a given, right? Who's it written by? This is participatory. Paul. All right, so we got that. So we know who it's written by, who it's coming from. Who's it written to? Anybody? The churches in Galatia or Galatians, right? And so this is important because we have such a, a low view, I think, in 2023 of the church. But when we look in Scripture... The church, there's a high view of church. By church, I mean the gathering of Christians. It was assumed throughout the whole New Testament that Christians gathered. And so when we see the New Testament, a lot of the letters written, we see letters written to local churches. And no different here. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia. And when you look at the Apostle Paul's letters, he has three overarching reasons he writes these letters to all of these different churches as you go throughout the New Testament. You can simply categorize them very broadly as care, correction, or caution. There's a lot that goes in under all of these, but really all those letters have reasons of care, correction, or caution. And they're interweaved a lot through these letters. And what you're going to see in this letter comes from a caring heart, but it's a lot of caution and correction. And this letter is interesting because he does something unique that's not common in compared to his other letters. Usually his letters include a thankfulness to the church. This one doesn't. And this is shocking because even when he wrote the church in Corinth, who were all kinds of crazy, okay? You think you had a bad church life. Church in Corinth, crazy. He even says his thankfulness for them. But he doesn't hear. And so maybe there's two reasons 
that we're going to look at. I mean, there's, he's going to point to two reasons, but maybe the reasons why he jumps into these two reasons dead with the severity of the heresy that was happening in the church in Galatia. The two reasons and issues that he's confronting are simply these. Number one, his apostleship. That's what we see he jumps off the bat here, that he is an apostle appointed by Jesus himself, which some were debating. Unlike the other apostles, Paul was appointed by the resurrected Jesus. And we see this in Acts 9. As he was going down the road to Damascus, he was corrected by Jesus there. And then directed to the house of Judas, where by God's sovereignty and orchestrating, he would meet a man named Ananias. And the Apostle Paul in Acts 22, verse 14, he is relaying his story for God's glory, also known as a testimony. And he relays what Ananias had told him on that day. And I said this to Paul. He said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will. To see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. Since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. This is so crucially important because here the apostle Paul, God revealed his will to him and his words to him. Because he's going to be a witness. You know, that's key. Because witnesses, what do they do? They speak about what they've seen and heard. Now, some here during this church time were doubting God's word through Paul. Not unlike many today. And just to be clear, this is a doctrinal distinctive of this church. And we get into this in some of our Connecting Point class. Is that we stand on God's word. The inerrancy of Scripture, also known as without error. We believe that's all from God. Through man, but from God, and it's without error. And what we see here is, off the bat, what does God do with Paul? I'm going to let you know my will and give you my words. And so what's Paul's responsibility? To go and proclaim and also write the words of God. And so we are people of the book. People of the Bible. And so we go to the Bible to guide our lives. We don't go to our lives to guide the Bible. Does that make sense? Because we get that all twisted 2023. And so off the bat, he's saying he is an apostle. Let's stop debating that. And the second reason for this letter, he says we are all sinners saved by grace, which some were deviating from. That's what we see in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God the Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is crucial. So the context of this letter is that the church of Galatia had fallen into the lethal trap of legalism, diverting to a doctrine of salvation that combines the necessity of God's grace and human effort. That and's important. That and makes all the difference. So they fell into the trap of combining the necessity of God's grace and human effort. And what he points out here is that God rescues us from our self-based righteousness through the gift of his grace. 
And to be very blunt, Isaiah 64, verse 6. When it comes to all the good things that we do to try and earn a righteousness, it says, All of us have become like something unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. So what's being said, here's all these things that we try to do, these good things, trying to earn something from God are like polluted garment. What that means is a used menstrual rag. Yeah, more graphic than they want to translate to, right? That's what our good deeds are like. The best that we can do if we're trying to earn something from God are like filthy rags. I've heard it said like this. It's like, Taking a burnt cake, putting frosting on it, decorating it looks pretty beautiful, like this amazing wedding cake, right? But what happens? It may look beautiful, for sure. But as soon as you eat it, what's it going to taste like? Burnt cake, right? Still burnt cake. That's what we try and do with our good deeds. We like try and mask our own sinfulness with all these good deeds, try and cover them up, and it doesn't work. So there's three things I... I want us to see through the text about God's grace. Three things. Number one, God's grace saves us from our sinfulness. That's what he's pointing to. God's grace saves us from our sinfulness. Psalm 14, verse 3 just says simply, There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 53, verse 3 says, All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is certainly no one righteous on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.10, There is no one righteous, not even one. And don't worry, we're not going to stay here, right? This is not like a beat-down session. But we need to have some context to recognize how good God's grace is. Let me ask you this. Parents. Parents in the room? Any parents have kids? When did you teach your kids how to steal? How, what age was that? Or how to lie? Anybody want to say what age that you taught them? No? You know why? Because you didn't have to teach them that. They're little black-hearted sinners. That's why. You know why they're that? Because their parents are black-hearted sinners. That's why. Listen, I'm raising a bunch of black-hearted sinners. I recognize it. As a matter of fact, I spend all my time teaching them not to, Right? Blood, sweat, and tears, don't do that. And what? They still do that. I remember one of my kids, I won't name the name, but when she was younger, much younger, <laughs> you know, not many things are reserved for dad in the pantry, but some things I buy myself something that kids just don't touch. is mine, right? And one thing is Swiss rolls. It's a weakness. Little Debbie's. That was mine. Well-known rule in the Westman house. Swiss rolls, dad's. All of a sudden, I had a couple missing one day. I'm like, what in the world? Well, my other kids were too young to be stealing at that point. So I go into my unnamed daughter's house, or room, and they had just packages of wrappers in her trash can. Good at stealing, not good at hiding, right? Not so much. But who taught her how to do that? No one. No one taught her how to do that. Why? That's our nature. That's what we do. We want what we want. We crave and we give into our cravings. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here we see in Galatians that he rescued us. And that's what's beautiful about Romans 3.23 because then what comes after Romans 
24, you got it. You've been here before. Which says, they, being all those who have come to Jesus by faith, are justified freely by his what? Grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 says it like this. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift. God's gift. So despite who we are, Ephesians 2 does a great job of this. Dead in our sins and trespasses. Children of wrath. But God's grace. God's grace is the game changer. So number one, we have to see that we're saved by God's grace from our sinfulness. And we're, number two, God's grace saves us from our blindness. From our blindness. Psalm 53, verse 1, simply says this. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. I didn't say it. God said it. 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. There's a blindness that happens and that we're under the sway of blindness that the evil one has on those who are walking in rebellion against Christ. And that was me. And I was looking, I was thinking my own walk and my journey to faith. And I wasn't until 20 years old when I finally surrendered to Jesus as my Lord by faith. But up until that point, I'd been in and out of churches here and there. I'm sure I've heard the gospel. But it's amazing that I always had this sense that I was good with God. Like, we're good. I'm just going to do what I want, and we're fine. It's scary because I definitely heard aspects of the gospel, but I don't remember any of it. Until God removed the blindness from me. And I heard it, and I believed it, and I knew it. And I saw I was a sinner in need of God's grace. And he has extended it to someone like me in my rebellion. In Acts 26, again, the Apostle Paul is telling his testimony, again, his story for God's glory. And he gets the words that Jesus told him. In verse, at the end of verse 17 and 18, Jesus is saying, I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to so them as the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by what? Faith. In who? Me, being Jesus. So there's a darkness, there's a blindness that happens until the Lord steps in. And that's what we're praying for, the Lord to step in and remove the blindness from our eyes and help us see him more clearly because there is a God, there is a Savior who desperately, crazy, cares for us. So by God's grace, we're saved from our sinfulness. By God's grace, we're saves us from our blindness. And thirdly, by God's grace, continually brings us forgiveness. And it's important that continually... Because here we just got the beat down from Scripture saying we're all sinners in need of a Savior and we can't do anything good and it's like filthy rags and burnt cakes and all these different things. But by God's grace continually forgives us, continually. Let that sink in for a second. Any sinners in here? Anybody sinned? And everybody that didn't raise your hand, you just did because you're a bunch of liars, okay? So might as well start repenting. Listen, we're all sinners. And I'm not trying to say it's like to encourage you. That's just the opposite. We all need to start there. 
1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But then verse 9, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I like the alls in scriptures and the everyone's in scriptures because a lot of things and a lot of people. From all unrighteousness. Psalm 103 verse 12 says it like this. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. This is so vitally important to our walk because God's grace is so amazing. But when we come to passages like this, when we think about forgiveness, we often think global and not gospel, right? So we think of east is from the west. If you go east long enough, you're going to catch up to yourself, right? You're just going to go around and around and around. You're going to be... So we think forgiveness is like global. Like I, I know I've, I asked for forgiveness, but I, I know he forgives me kind of and maybe not really, and we try to take it back and we wrestle with this forgiveness of ourselves and to extend it to others. The east is from the west is it keeps going the opposite directions, completely removed, cleansed, forgiven. That's the goodness of God's grace, but yet so often we listen to the lies of the enemy when it comes to forgiveness. The lies of the enemy... Maybe one such lie would be your severity or frequency of sin is too much. Have you ever heard that? You did it this time. I can't believe you did that. That's unforgivable. Don't even pray to God because you can't even get over what you just did. Severity and frequency is too much. That's a lie of the devil. We said before, I'm going to say it again, you cannot out God's grace. And really, it's biblical. Romans 5.20 says, The law came along to multiply trespasses, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So what a beautiful grace that God extended to us that even when we sin, we can continue to approach Him, and we know that He'll cleanse us and forgive us. So we talk about all these black-hearted sinner things, which is completely true. Y'all are pretty awful people, but God forgives you. I am too. I'm with you. But God forgives us. I mean, we have to start grappling with the goodness of God's grace. So one lie we hear is your sins are too severe and the frequency is too much. Another one is that you need to be gooder to get God's grace. You, ever heard that? you need to be gooder to get God's grace. No. That theology is worse than my grammar. That's the point. Okay? It's completely wrong. Like, I just need to do better and try hard and do different things, and hopefully he'll be forgiving towards me and extend grace to me. And you don't have to hope he does. You surrender more and work less. Sounds crazy. I know. Stop trying so hard and start surrendering to the goodness of his grace because you're not strong enough. That's right. You're a sinner and weak. I'm glad you came here this morning. Hope you're encouraged. But it's true, we need him. His grace is sufficient. We need to know there is a God, but we're unable to do enough right things to earn a relationship with him in hopes of becoming right with him. And bluntly, like we see here, any addition to Jesus' work of salvation will leave you sinking in your sinning. That's the danger of the and, the necessity of God's grace and human effort. 
When you combine that and in there, you're essentially saying Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient, equaling unforgiveness of your sin. This is the severity we see in this letter. That's why he jumps right into the issue. And this is why turning from the good news that we see here of God's grace was so shocking to Paul. Look at verse 10. He says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For I am now trying to persuade people or God. Or am I striving to please people? If I'm still striving to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And again, going back again to the context of this, this church was being swamped in a lethal dose of legalism, saying, essentially, drifting from the goodness of God's grace and combining God's grace and my effort, you need them both, and it's false, it's heresy, and it's damaging and destructive. And this is the urgency and the bluntness that we see here. You see Paul use some hyperbole to get to the reality. He says, if we are an angel, preach a different gospel, it's hyperbole, that's impossible. But the reality is, if anyone, that's the reality, because anyone does preach the gospel. There's a lot of false preachers of false gospels. Then and now, teaching doctrines that are best damaging and at worst very destructive. This is what Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 7. He says, be on your guard against false prophets who will come in you, to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Be on guard, because this will happen. Paul, in Acts 20, he meets with the elders of the church in Ephesus. That's the pastors of the church in Ephesus. And he warns them in similar language. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. The flock is your church. The Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert. So I'm asking you, are you on alert? Because false prophets, false teachers, false pastors didn't just go away. They remain. And so are you on alert? And how do you be on alert? I love Acts chapter 17. Because it shows how we're to be alert. See, Paul goes there and talks to the Bereans. And sharing the gospel... And the Bereans were taking it in, but they weren't just taking it in like, oh, it must be true because this guy says it. No, in Acts 17, 11 says they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So anything you hear, any preacher, pastor, even from this own pulpit here, go back to the word of God and see what it actually says in content. Don't just take my word for it. Search it yourself. 
That's why we use so much scripture here. I don't know if you noticed that, because I want us to know God's word. I don't have anything good to say. All I do is read the Bible to you on Sunday mornings. The secret's out, right? I just read the Bible. It's amazing. But here you see Paul emphasizes the severity of the teaching heresy. He says another gospel to make the point there is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. There's only one good news. And if you're not just a sinner who, needed, who needs to do gooder, right? You're a sinner in need of a Savior. And kids in the room, don't practice my grammar. It's terrible. The gospel is that we are sinners in need of a Savior, but by faith alone, by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, you can receive forgiveness of sins and be cleansed and be right with God, the relationship that you were created to have in the first place. So don't get stuck in hearing how bad of sinners we are because God's done something about it. If you're stuck there, you've missed the gospel. Because we have to start there to see the goodness of God's grace. And even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's amazing. And it's so amazing, I think we have a hard time really comprehending it. And notice he says, a curse be on you. It shows the severity of teaching the heresy. This is anathema. Anathema. Meaning, devoted to divine destruction. Also known as eternally condemned. Let them be eternally condemned because what they're teaching is leading everyone down the wide road of eternal destruction. Teaching God's word is incredibly vital, important, significant, and has eternal outcomes. The point is either Christ's blood was sufficient for all or was not sufficient at all. That's it. That's what he keeps drilling down on. You remember when Jesus is praying at the moments before he'll actually be betrayed and sent to the cross, he's praying. He's praying. And what he says, he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup is God's wrath that's about to be poured out on sin, namely him. If it's possible, if there's any other way, let it be that way. Because if there's any other way, it seems like an awful waste of my blood. Like if Oprah's right and all roads lead to heaven, let that be the way. If we can obey the Ten Commandments, if we can align our chakras, if we can reincarnate enough time, obey the five pillars, be good enough or do the right religious thing, let's do that. If there's any other way. But then he says this, yet, not as I will, but you will. What happens? God's will was for Jesus to go to the cross and to suffer and be sacrificed for our sin, to bear the weight of our sin, to bear God's wrath so we don't have to because we couldn't. By God's grace, he sent Jesus to take our place. That's why I love the thief on the cross so much. The thief on the cross just gets rid of so many different arguments and debates. Jesus was on the cross, you got two thieves and debating and have this conversation. But at the end, the thief says this. He looks to Jesus in desperation and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's expressing faith that Jesus is who he said he was and was doing what he said he would do. But Jesus' response is so crucial. You remember what he said? 
Do you say, man, I, I wish you could, but you're kind of stuck on the cross. And so if only you could be baptized, we'd be good. Or if only you go pray some more or do enough good deeds or did you serve enough at church? Did you do that? No, you didn't serve enough? You weren't like the way kids team? You didn't do that? Well, sorry. He didn't say any of that. Why? Because none of that was necessary for salvation, for the forgiveness of sin. What it was is by God's grace alone, by faith alone, in the guy on the cross alone. Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's it. The thief did nothing and had every reason to be condemned. But the moment of faith changed everything. It's interesting. I talk to people here and there, and usually when people say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, that's awesome. Praise God. Let me ask you a question, and I'll let you guys think about this too. Let me ask you a question. You know, one day we know we'll stand before the Lord, and if he says, you know, why should I, being God, let you, being Joe, Steve, I don't know you personally, but if that's you, consider this. Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I had this conversation so many times, and so often, it usually starts with, well, because I, already off on the wrong foot, you did nothing. Because I. And so I love how Alistair Begg summarized, like, and pictures this story of the thief on the, tr- on the cross, having this conversation. Why should I be let you into heaven? Thief on the cross, uh, the guy in the middle cross said I can come. I love that, because that's just it. He did nothing. We can do nothing because Jesus did everything. This is the goodness of God's grace. When he said, it is finished, it means it is finished. It took me a long time to figure that out. You're welcome. It means paid in full to telestai. You're read the payment penalty for your sin has been paid. And you know what's crazy? That He paid that penalty before you even sinned. Before you even we're born, right? He already paid it, past, present, and future. This is the goodness of God's grace. So don't get bogged down in the condemnation that the enemy spews at you because, yes, we sin and fall short, but remember the goodness of God's grace, that there's forgiveness, for if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The goodness of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, He, being our Christ, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Salvation comes by way of substitution. Substitute my righteousness for his. And by faith, he gives us his righteousness because we are unrighteous. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's crazy. This good news of the gospel sounds like heresy because it's so easy. It's too easy. That's why the Galatian church has a hard time. The church in Galatians and the church in the West End and the people here, like, we have a hard time because it seems so easy. It must be heresy. Like, think about this. Like, you come to Jesus right now. If you're not following Jesus, but you're swamped in pornography, addiction, you name it, abuse, come to Jesus with all the junk. Imagine that. Like, don't try and clean yourself up first because you can't. You come to Jesus with all your garbage, all your junk, and let him do the cleaning. Sounds like heresy, right? Like, you have to do nothing. That's God's grace. We don't understand it because we have no relationships like that. We have never experienced a human grace like that because it's 
dare I say, not possible without the Spirit of God moving. The Bible absolutely teaches easy believism. It does. Absolutely teaches easy believism. It's so easy to believe. You have to do nothing. And also absolutely teaches hard beism. That means we're called to obedience. You're saved into a life following Jesus. So it's easy to believe. It's hard to follow. That's why few do it. I wish I was told that as a new Christian. It didn't change my salvation because, listen, you're saved. You want to follow Jesus. But it had been super cool if somebody said, you know what? You also got to obey. You can't just do what you want. Because here I'm a brand new Christian, all this baggage, and they give me a Bible. What do you do with that? Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. We're called to obedience, and it's rooted in the Great Commission. We quote it every single Sunday, and it kind of scares me because I don't want to be so familiar that we don't even recognize it. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, he says, Go therefore, that's a command, and make disciples of all nations. And in that command, there's two other ones. Baptizing. That means, as a follower of Jesus, you are baptized and you baptize after belief. It says, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it says, teaching. What? To observe. That's to obey everything that I've commanded you. So we're to go, and we're to be baptized and baptized. We're going to teach and be taught to what? Obey what Christ has commanded. So definitely easy believism, not so much on the beism. You guys catching that? Try to make it rhyme so it sticks in your minds a little bit more. We'll see if it'll see how that works out for you. The point we see here, and when we look at God's grace, is that we as Christians are working. We're called to do works, good works, but we're working from God's love, not for God's love. See y'all, you guys didn't hear that. We're working from God's love, not for God's love. I just want you to picture this. God's love's already been given. Not because of anything you have done, but because of who he is and your faith alone. That's why I love when Jesus is baptized and he says audibly, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And this is before Jesus did anything even remotely noteworthy. God's grace is the game changer that changes everything. And we talked about it a little bit last week, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of Christ compels us. Why do we obey? Because the love of Christ compels us. Why do we do these things? Because the love of Christ compels us. Why do we sacrifice? Because the love of Christ compels us. It's God's grace that we can experience the love of Christ. So it leads us to looking around. Looking around where we are. I talked about last week where we work, live, and play. Looking around because there are many people busy living blindly, drifting in the darkness of lostness all around us. Maybe that's you here today. Jesus commands his followers to do this. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Not just hire a dude, put him on stage so he can tell the gospel. That's not what he said. Everyone, go and preach the gospel. Why? Because God uses us and his message to bring people to himself. That's what the Bible says. 
Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel message. Romans 10.17, So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes from the message about Christ. And I want to know, do we really believe this? Like personally. Right? You don't need to answer that, but just think about it. Do you really believe that's true? We do as this church because we're people of the Word. We're people of the Bible. And I believe every word, and I believe this. So if we really believe this, then why are we living like we don't? If we really believe this, then why aren't we feeling the urgency of eternity? If we really believe this, why are we not burdened with the brokenness around us? Because you might say, well, I am, Pastor Josh. You don't know me like that, right? Well, if you are, it changes how you live. It changes what you do. It changes how you treat those around you. And it changes how the gospel is displayed in you and spoken through you because we're witnesses. We tell about what we've seen, heard, and experienced. I've just been really struck in my own life, in the life of our church, that we don't have time to go through the motions anymore. We don't have time to go through the motions as a church. We need to be the church that's in motion because eternity is at stake for so many people right around us. Being compelled by the love of Christ, it's time to get in the fight to push back the darkness of lostness all around us. Because by God's grace, we've experienced His life-changing power, bringing us from death to life, from darkness to light. And there's so many around us that are sinking and they're sinning that desperately need the hope of Christ and don't even know it. That's why God's placed you where you are. Maybe literally right next to you right here, but definitely where you go to school, where you go to work, where you go to recreation. We live in this beautiful state of Virginia, and we go down through the list of problems that we have here, right? I mean, you go down homelessness, poverty, addictions, crime, broken government, broken families, broken marriages, children without families. The list goes on and on and on. And all these are serious, big problems, but they're not the biggest problem. When we try to meet all the big problems, right? We try to, as we should, but we often miss the biggest problem, as we should not. And this biggest problem, just right here in our state, is lostness. That's what drives everything else. Is a life without Jesus. I don't know where they get these stats, but the stats say there's some 7 million people in our state that are without Jesus. 7 million. Let's just sink in for a minute. Faces, families, 7 million. Now, what if we can unpack 7 million with just 1%, reaching 1%? Who wouldn't want to do that, right? That's 70,000 people. So, okay, that's still a large number, but it seems a little bit more doable all of a sudden. Here's what the research continually shows. New churches reach more people faster than established churches. That's true. So, if that's the case, maybe we should be shifting towards planting more churches. Church talk, planting means starting new churches. Planting more churches. So if we go down that route, we'd have to reach 1%. We'd have to plant 280 churches that would then reproduce one more time. Does that make sense? Churches planting churches. Tomorrow, I'm going with a group of pastors down to Norfolk, the Tidewater area. 
And we're going to look at the potential of planting churches down there. And for those that don't know, we are already helping plant a church in Fredericksburg, Northern Virginia, by God's grace. So what if this church can be a part of the North Virginia, West Virginia, Eastern Virginia, not West Virginia, Western, there's a difference. Nobody wants to go to West Virginia. I'm kidding, I'm joking. But we're called to be a part of planting churches. That's God's plan A for reaching the world through the local church. But the only way to see more churches planted is to two things. To see more Christians sharing the gospel. This is so key. Because so often now, the new church planting mentality is to plant a worship service. We're not planting worship services. We're planting churches. So how do you plant a church? You go in the area. You proclaim the gospel. You know what's crazy? People actually believe it. Isn't that wild? Like almost like God had it that way. People believe, then you start, gather up, start discipling, you point leaders, you establish a church, they redo it again. This is the biblical mandate and practice. So think about how that shapes us. How are we sharing the gospel? Start right in your neighborhood with your neighbors. How's that look like? I mean, I think we overcomplicate it sometimes. What if you start just showing the gospel how you live your life to your neighbors? Serving your neighbors well. While look for opportunities that the Lord works to actually share the hope that we have in Christ. We're going to shift some of our outreach opportunities this year and to scale it down a little bit. We've, have done, we've done these big, massive outreach events at Short Pump Park, right? Our Easter and fall, and they're amazing. We have thousands of people coming when they hear the gospel and these things are going on. We're going to scale it down a little bit in the spring, into the summer, maybe even through the summer. And try to mobilize you to have a block party. This is the first you're hearing about it. I realize that. That's intentional. But we want to equip you and resource you to host a block party in your neighborhood to start gathering people and get to know them. Because it comes to relationship. And I'm telling you, there's the biggest need in this area, because we ask all the time, is relationship. People want to be together. They don't know how. What if we can help resource you to host a block party? Don't overcomplicate it. We can help you in your own neighborhood. And we'll show up and hang out with you, have some people there. It'd be awesome. So start praying through that. So what are we doing in our own neighborhoods? What if we talk about the 1%? What if you had a one initiative for your week, each week? Who's one person you're praying for? Pray for one. Do you have one? Maybe you can invite one person to church. That's a good thing. One invite. We got these cards out here we made actually to go out, not to sit on the counter. Invite cards. It'd be great if you used them. Invite one. And what if you made it a priority to see if you can share the gospel with one each week? Pray for one, invite one, and share with one. Like, think about your whole week. Is that too complicated? I don't think so. It almost sounds biblical. And then about the nations. What are we doing with the nations? Because we're not to forsake. Acts 1.8 is in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we're to do as we go. And so our neighbors and the nations, right now we're part of helping a church plant in Puerto Rico. And we're going in April. And so if you want to go in April, let us know. It's in the email every single Sunday, Monday. We're going in the fall. And we means you, us. Like we are doing this. So we're going to Puerto Rico because there's vast losses. They know a lot about Jesus and not know Jesus because they're stuck in a works-based religion. 
We're planning to go to Kenya, Lord one. Listen, we're sending to Kenya. We're sending a group here, our own missionaries, Lord willing. And so we're sending, and then we're going to be supporting, and Lord willing, we'll be serving alongside them in the months and year or so to come. We'll see, right? And right now, we're already invested in areas within the 1040 window, also known as the resistant belt. This is what I want us to know. As life of the church, we are striving by God's grace to push back the darkness of lostness. This past year, we have trained hundreds, been a part of training hundreds of new church planters and pastors in an area that's closed and resistant to the gospel within the 1040 window. A country that I can't name because of the hostility. But within this resistance belt, what they call it, there's 3.25 billion people living in unreached people groups. The majority of the Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists live in this region. And churches aren't really going there because it's hard. It takes sacrifice. At what point are other people's souls worth it? And if you're even scared to share the gospel, that's all right. You're not alone. In two weeks from now, two Sundays from now, we're hosting a gospel sharing training. Because we're called to it, but oftentimes we don't even know how to get in conversation. It can be awkward, scary. We do this training for us to be equipped. You're not alone. And it's not unique to you. It's funny, you can talk to the most experienced evangelists, and they'll tell you every time they still share the gospel, they're still a little nervous. But does that stop us? It shouldn't. And so we share the gospel. But then what do we do? We make disciples. Right? People come to faith. We don't just stop there. We disciple them. So what are we doing as a church and what are we doing individually? That's the question I want to ask. So as a church, why we have discipleship groups? Are you in one? Because we're called to disciple and be discipled. So we have discipleship groups which are designed intentionally for discipleship, for reproducing, multiplying. We're starting a new group at the end of this month. You'll see it in tomorrow's email. Missional communities. This is strategic because we're called to be in community but with some intentionality. So we're going to be serving intentionally. We're going to be gathering intentionally in small groups, but we're going to be doing this very strategically, intentionally. Like, what would it look like to host just a missional hangout, for example? Like, for instance, I know you all watch football because you're a bunch of Christians. The Super Bowl's coming, right? What if you hosted a Super Bowl party for the gospel? Praise God. Sign me up for that. Meaning, what if you invited some of your friends and lost people that you know just come hang out and be around other Christians and to experience some of the community we have on purpose? Just doing life together. We overcomplicate it sometimes. We're all busy, but you're all doing stuff. Invite people into what you're doing. And finally, this is the first time you've heard me mention this, but we'll talk about a lot more. This church, we're starting a residency program. We're talking about discipleship. And so most churches, I know all churches I've been a part of, if someone were to come to the pastor or leadership say, you know what, pastor, I feel called to devote my life to the ministry or to be a pastor or to be a missionary. The common response is, that's great. Go to seminary or read a book. Like, we don't have a process. There's no intentionality. Well, by God's grace, we're going to be starting a residency program that brings a lot of clarity and intentionality for those who are called to ministry, whether it's kids' ministry, youth ministry, pastoral ministry, missionaries. We have tracks to help equip that to no cost to us. So if you're getting scared about where my money's going, don't worry. Breathe. Because the missionary, the resident, will be raising their own funds with our help, 
We're partnering with the North American Mission Board to supplement some funds for the residency candidate. And by God's grace, listen to this. So we just started building this thing, and we already have one person planning to be here in March to take part of this residency. God brought them to us. And this week, I talked to another person who goes to another church, can't be here in person, devotes life here, but he wants to be part of it from a distance. So we're trying to figure that out. So God's already bringing people because people need discipleship because they long for intentional discipleship. So what are we doing? What are you doing in your own lives? Pushing back the darkness of losses will not happen by passivity. It will only happen by way of sacrificial intentionality. Keyword sacrificial. I know we're winding things down, but I want to remind us of one thing. Our theme for this year, the 12-1 life of worship. This is what we're talking about here. Our lives spent with, out of a heart of worship. This is Romans 12-1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is why we do everything that we do. For the love of Christ compels us, giving by giving God's grace, going with God's grace, we've been changed. And so I desire to see these things happen. I desire to live my life spent for God's glory. I don't want to waste the minutes God's given me. I don't know when my time's up. But I don't want to stand before the Lord and say, I squandered the time you gave me. There's too many souls at stake. And by God's grace, I'm compelled for many to know life-changing hope that's in Christ alone. Let me close with this. Maybe the scariest words in Scripture. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this. On that day, that day being when we stand before the Lord, because we all will at some point. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we, right, already in trouble, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name, Like, didn't we do all these things? He said, I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. The difference being, it's not what you do. It's who you know. So I'm asking, do you know him? Have you surrendered to him? Stop making excuses by, well, I've done this, and Josh, you don't know my background. Jesus doesn't care. Because he did know it, and he died for it. So I'm asking you to respond. I'm asking you to respond to what God's doing in your life right now. Maybe it is for the first time you've seen, I have been a fool. I've been rejecting God. I've said there is no God. Forgive me. I now see the goodness of your grace, and I need it. I've been making excuses. Forgive me. I'm coming to you, arms wide open. My life is yours. That can happen right where you're sitting. May for others, God's shown you areas of life that you've been passive. You've let people just coast on by you without any intentionality for the sake of the gospel. Really in an unloving way, just keeping your hope to yourself. Maybe it's time to start getting into the game, getting in the fight to push back darkness of lostness. By God's grace, he's called us to it. He said he'll never leave us or forsake us. So who around you can you be praying for? Who can around you, can you start intentionally pursuing of a heart for them, propelled by the love of Christ? I want to invite our band back up, and we're going to sing another song. 
We're going to continue worshiping, but I'm going to ask you to respond to what God's doing in your life. And this could be a variety of different things and look a variety of different ways. But when they get up here, I'm going to spend some time in prayer with you. We're just going to pray. I'm going to ask you to respond just in your seat. Whatever God's laying on your heart, respond and do that. Maybe you need to pray with someone around you. Do that. Maybe you get on your knees and pray. Do that. We're going to have a team over here that would love to pray with you, pray for you, answer questions they may have, things you're going through because you're not in this alone. Do that. But do what God's leading you to do. And I just pray that you just are refreshed by his presence and the reminder of the goodness of his grace. Because he's so, so good. Let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Father, right now, we just come to you just so thankful for who you are. The grace that you've given us that we did not deserve. The amazing love that you have for us, even when we haven't done anything to earn it and have done everything to not gain it. So I just pray that you move in this place right now. Move your Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our minds. Reveal to us what you're calling us to. Remove blindness, remove brokenness, heal hurts, heal wounds emotionally, spiritually. Father, right now, even I pray, start breaking addictions by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, free us from the bondage that we're walking in, whether it's our sinfulness, our fear, our anxieties. Father, free us and help us rest in the goodness of your grace. Lord, lead us in response. Lead us in worship. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.